I invite you to open your Bible to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. We've been served well this morning by music that's profound and theological, by a riveting focus on the Savior and his incarnation. And this is not what has consumed our society in these last few weeks and even months leading up to Christmas time. Instead, it's lots of sentimentality. Uh, maybe nothing more typical of this, nothing more cheesy and predictable and tidy than the Hallmark Christmas movie. It's a major industry. Dozens of those things are cranked out every year. You may be familiar with them. God bless you if you're not. (laughs) Big city executive lady sent to a small town to develop a big hotel, but ends up staying at the small bed and breakfast, entering a cookie contest, losing her hard, edgy, big city exterior, and falling in love with the kind of older demographic lumberjack small town (laughs) with a boisterous family, all of it leading up to Christmas Day, which really serves just as a a merciful end to the movie. Snowflakes, embrace, maybe a smooch, and credits roll. Uh, Did I mention 200 commercial breaks? And then another one starts right after that. Not that I watch them or anything. You can't deny there's something simple and superficial, relaxing and purposefully mindless about these movies. But in them, Christmas is a deadline. It's the point of narrative climax. The movie has to be resolved by Christmas, or they'll lose their tree farm, or their quaint inn, or forever be assigned to lonely, corporate, big city despair. Christmas in those films and in our society today is is much like that. It's just a deadline. It's just a a foil for sentimentality. It's about a mood. It's about the Christmas spirit. It's about positive and uplifting and red and green vacation. It's a date on the calendar with a lot of buildup to spend a lot of money, cause a lot of stress. I read yesterday that more people have heart attacks on Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and New Year's Day than any other days of the year, which made me check my pulse. But there's a lot of attention, a lot of chaos, a lot of frantic movement, but not a lot of substance or significance. And Christmas time demands more. We get a glimpse of that when we gather together to worship. We're reminded of that when we look around our church family. Some spend, some dear folks in our church are spending Christmas suffering with illness or loneliness or family problems or maybe even most poignantly some feel the most painful sorrow of an empty seat at the table. Superficiality at Christmas doesn't serve us well because it doesn't point us to the Savior. 
But when Christians celebrate Christmas, there's nothing superficial about it. And you hear it in our carols. Listen to the words of Charles Wesley's carol. Come thou long expected Jesus, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious eternal kingdom bring by thine own eternal spirit. Rule in all our hearts alone by thine all-sufficient merit. Raise us to thy glorious throne. I mean, that's got more in it than 10,000 Hallmark movies. It causes our hearts to soar with glorious truth. There's nothing superficial there. It's substance and it's glory. And that's what we're aiming at this morning. Sentimentality can warm our hearts, but only for a moment. What we need is glorious conviction an encounter with the Son of God, a consideration of God's eternal plan of salvation and the paradox and mystery of the doctrine of the incarnation and the reality of its glorious results in salvation as an accomplishment of God and God alone and all that that entails as we wait not for the coming of a baby in a manger, which has already taken place, but we wait for his glorious return. The Christmas story is familiar to us. It's unpredictable when you explore it in its depths. It's a simple story, but profound and theological. It's powerful and it's glorious because it demands a response from each of us, which is why I want to show you Paul's look at the glory of Christmas in Galatians chapter four. Just simply looking at two verses that are Part of a larger argument that we'll explore as this message moves along. But for now, I want you to look just at Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. It says this But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. This is the very word of God. The glory of Christmas for the Apostle Paul is on display in this section And it's a a surprising place to find a Christmas story, perhaps, because Galatians, as you might know, is Paul's most vicious letter. It is where he displays his apostolic ire. And though you can hear the themes of Christmas in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4, the fullness of time coming, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law as we might receive the adoptions as sons. It's a beautiful portrayal of the heart of the glory of Christmas. It's part of a larger argument that Paul makes in one of his very first letters to the churches. And it's classic Paul, he's intense, but it's not classic because he's more indignant than he is in any of his other letters because he's aware that false teaching has infiltrated and influenced these Galatian Christians. It's a book 
full of contrasting themes. The true gospel versus the false gospel. Faith versus works. Law versus grace. Liberty versus legalism. Sonship versus slavery. And the desires of the flesh versus the fruit of the spirit. And it flies in the face of what so many critics of Christianity and those who uh, pretend to understand its origins in order to criticize or disprove it say that heresy is something that developed over time in the church, that the early church was this fluid kind of that believing all sorts of conflicting things. Uh, Galatians proves that wrong. What, uh, what activated Paul's apostolic ire isn't a secondary matter of less importance. Instead, the Galatians, he realizes, have been exposed to heresy. And heresy isn't some misunderstanding or difference in doctrine. Heresy is a belief so dangerous and so contrary to Orthodox Christianity that it leads to damnation. This is why Paul opens his letter, not with his normal salutation, but launching right into the words in verse 6 of chapter 1. I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we've preached to you, he is to be accursed. That's how serious Paul's concern is for the churches and the false teaching that had crept in that tried to change the gospel of justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ, salvation accomplished by God through the sacrifice of his son on the cross, through his perfect righteous life, and add to it by bringing in works and obedience to the law and rituals and circumcision. Those who had come into the Galatian church had brought with them a a kind of spiritual superiority to which Paul had to answer. And we'll look more at the flow of this, how it fits into verses four and five in a moment. But suffice it to say that as we move into and zoom into looking at this section that's part of this larger letter in order to explore the glory of Christmas and to see the heart and substance of this message to understand why it matters so much to Christians to think deeply and rightly about the incarnation, to dwell in the glory of God becoming man. Uh, This particular paragraph comes after Paul has reached a key conclusion, teaching that the priority for the believers is faith which has activated their union with Christ, which has lined them up with Abraham and has included the Gentile believers and is moving their status from slave to son and therefore inheritor. And that's the argument of this paragraph, but I want to explore verses four and five in its beautiful simplicity as it brings us to a place of focus on the true significance of what Christians have been celebrating since the earliest centuries the celebration of the coming of the Messiah, the Advent, Christmas time. 
The Christ child born of Mary, the incarnation, the son of God becomes a man. This is worthy of our attention and it supersedes our celebrations and needs to consume the entirety of our lives as we worship the God-man Christ Jesus. In this passage, we receive a glimpse of the eternal plan of God unfolding and a description of one of the most mysterious and important doctrines in the entire Christian faith, that of the incarnation. And gloriously, this passage even gives us a reminder of what God's salvation plan and Jesus' incarnation accomplishes in our lives. So let's look at these two simple, beautiful, gloriously deep verses in three portions, starting in verse four. What is so glorious about Christmas? Well, number one, it's part of a glorious plan, a glorious plan. Look at verse four. But when the fullness of the time came, when the fullness of time came, the implication of that phrase, the fullness of time, means that there was a time before the advent, before the manger scene, before Bethlehem, before the fulfillment of God's promise and the coming of the Messiah. What was this time? Well, it was a time described to us in the Old Testament as a time of waiting, a time of promise. And that waiting is exactly what we see when we listen to the story of redemption moving from Genesis to the New Testament all the way back to Eden, embedded in the promise that God made in Genesis 3.15 to conquer Satan through the offspring of the woman. Mankind has been waiting for a son who will conquer and rescue. And it's that proto-euangelion, that that first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3 that fuels not just the book of Genesis, but the entire chronology of the Old Testament. Remember the words of God to Eve and to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Genesis 3.15. And this promise to conquer Satan through the offspring of the woman is this waiting, this patience, this hope that moves along the narrative of Genesis and the entirety of the Old Testament. Every time a son is born, the narrative is built so that the reader would ask the question, is this the promised son? And heartbreak after heartbreak ensues as Cain kills Abel, as Noah proves that he's not the one as God promises Abraham that he will make him a great nation and give him a land and be a blessing to all people. But even in Abraham's life, decade after decade passes without the fulfillment of the promise. And the same is true of Abraham's sons, of Isaac and Jacob. Last week, Pastor John taught us about the the promise of the line of Judah and that 10-generational curse. That's a lot of waiting, 10 generations. If you've got little kids and you've been counting down Christmas, 10 days has taken forever in their experience. Try 10 generations before the curse would be lifted and before 
King David would be born. Ten generations pass and still no promise, no son. And then Ruth and Boaz and Hannah and Samuel and more waiting. And then finally, the great King David and his throne and a promise to David that his son will sit on the throne forever in 2 Samuel 7. But that promise is evidence that there's still more waiting to be done. David was not the promised king. He was not the anointed one in the ultimate sense. It would be David's greater son. And a thousand years after the death of David, Luke 2.25, we meet a man named Simeon who's described as righteous and devout, one who was, Luke 2.25, waiting for the consolation of Israel. This is the fullness of time and all that was anticipated. Simeon's prayer, one of my favorites in Luke 2.29, Lord, know that you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your words. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory to your people Israel and longing and hope and expectation carry through the ministry. This longing and hope and expectations carries through the ministry of John the Baptist. But that's Galatians 4.4. Finally, but when the fullness of time came. I mean, put yourself in these thousands of years of redemptive history as the people of God awaited their promised Messiah, awaited the one who would conquer, the this one who plunged this, this world into sin, awaited the, the coming of a king who would establish peace and justice. And then finally he came. But so contrary to their expectations that so many, almost everyone, missed his coming. So much so that he would stand up in Mark 1 verse 15 and Jesus himself would say, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And the religious leaders of the day said, we'll wait for someone else. The Apostle Paul was one of the few who got it. And he wrote in Ephesians 1.10, in similar language to Galatians 4, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan or an administration for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 1 Corinthians 10.11 in similar language, after talking about the history of, of Israel and their disobedience in the wilderness, it comes to a point of culmination when he says, the one on whom, or we are the, the ones on whom the end of the ages has come. I've heard people explain this, this phrase in Galatians 4, when the fullness of the time came. And it's interesting, they focused on the, the Roman road system. Well, that's, that's cool. They had good roads in Rome. You could get around better than you'd ever been able to get around in the, the history of man so far. They talk about the, the vast stretch and power and really uniting force of the Roman Empire 
the common languages spoken as being the perfect time for the coming of Christ. And all of that is obviously true. The Roman roads really were something, but you should see the Autobahn or Route 66. It works super good sometimes. But it's not as though God was waiting for the right circumstances to line up. When the fullness of time came, speaks of the sovereignty of God in bringing about this moment and all the providences of history which he weaves together by his sovereign will. The reason the time was the time is because God said so, because God orchestrated it. It was his plan. The parallel of verse 4, but when the fullness of time came, is in chapter 4, verse 2. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. This is the realization that it was time for God's promise to save God's designation at this point in history to bring salvation to this world. A new era had arrived. God ushered it in with uh, verse 4. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. This is the realization of God's promise to save. This is God's designation at this point in history to bring salvation to this world. A new era has arrived. God has ushered it in with the sending of his son. This is what Hebrews 1 says, that God has spoken in various ways in various times, but now he has spoken by his son. The emphasis is not merely on the moment in time or its circumstances, but on the God who has appointed this time, and he did so by sending his son. That's the glorious plan and its timing. But there's another thing glorious about this plan. The plan is glorious because it's according to God's perfect timing. The plan is glorious because of the nature of this plan. I mean, you see that the implication of verse 4 When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, puts God at the sovereign throne control of this entire operation of salvation. This is glorious because it means that the dawning and realization of this plan, which is described as the sending of God's son, sending implies Christ's preexistence. Jesus, contrary to Uh, Cults like Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses did not have a beginning to his existence in Bethlehem. Sending, in verse 4, implies Christ's pre-existence. What lies behind verse 4 is the reality of the eternal Godhead, the Trinity, the very Trinity and the plan of salvation detailed for us in redemptive history, the unfolding of the magnificent story of God's grace from Genesis to Revelation. And this plan didn't begin as a Trinitarian reaction to the fall of man. The Trinity wasn't counseling in a crisis meeting when Adam and Eve plunged the human race into sin, biting their fingernails, saying, what are we going to do? Instead, this plan finds its source and origin 
not in a God who reacts, but in a God whose perfect glory and in Trinitarian wisdom insisted from eternity past to display his glory in the redemption of sinners. This is a plan we get a glimpse of, a plan that stretches back to all eternity, an eternal plan, a great salvation plan to accomplish redemption and at its very heart shows us the glory of God in his Trinitarian perfection. When God sent his son, chapter 4, verse 4, this little phrase, when God sent his son reminds us that redemption began in eternity past. This is the teaching of Scripture. That the elect were chosen, not randomly, but according to Ephesians 1, we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. When the Lord Jesus prays to his Father in John 17, he speaks of a a promise that God the Father made to give his Son a people. The same in John chapter 6. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus repeatedly refers to the plan of God that Jesus is fulfilling in accordance with his Father in perfect triune harmony that stretches back not to Bethlehem, but to before the foundation of the world. This is the gospel of God. Jesus speaks of this plan in eternity past. In many Old Testament texts, several from the Psalms, Psalm 2, Psalm 110, Psalm 89, speak of a decree where the eternally begotten God was given the nations and the earth as his inheritance. Theologians call this eternal arrangement within the Godhead to save and redeem a people for God's glory, the pactum salutis. That's a fancy Latin phrase. It just simply means an agreement to save, sometimes called the covenant of redemption or a great salvation plan. Burkhoff describes it with these words, the agreement between the Father, and I want you to picture this, because it's easy to take our minds to that poignant scene in the manger and the, the first starting point of the redemption of mankind in that Christmas scene that's so approachable and familiar. Let your worship be elevated as you consider the origin of that plan in the Godhead between Father and Son and Holy Spirit in eternity past. This is how Burkhoff describes it. The agreement between the Father, giving the Son as head and redeemer of all the elect, and the Son voluntarily taking the place of those whom the Father has given him. This is the very plan of God. It's why this is so Glorious. It's a plan that's so glorious, not just because of God's perfect timing, but because of the nature of this plan being grounded in God's triune perfection. Some of us are going on road trips over the the break to visit family. And you know what's involved in that, depending on how far you go. You got to get on the same page with the crew as you stuff them in the car. And you've got to get their stuff together. 
I don't, Marilee does this, I don't know what this is, but I'm just, I'm kind of speculating by observation. <laughs> but there's packing involved. And there's a route chosen. I could do that part. There's pit stops that I resist. I can go 800 miles in nine hours. Add the fam. It's taken us a week to get there. But even in our little road trip, we have a plan. We're going to go this far. We're going to stop at these places. We're going to have lunch here. How much more so does the eternal triune God in his perfection and glory have a plan for the salvation of sinners that would maximize the glory of God and prove his worthiness of worship and provide for his people for all eternity a participation in this glorious plan so that they would reflect and enjoy and praise the eternally glorious God in his plan of salvation. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas in this glorious plan. Zechariah 6.13 talks about a covenant of peace between Yahweh and the branch. That's Christ. This is why Galatians 4 says God sent forth his son. You see, that means that God's purpose in salvation is invincible. It's according to his perfect time and it's according to his perfect wisdom and plan and therefore nothing can undo it. Not the devil, not circumstances, not rebellious humanity, not death itself. Nothing can overcome the salvation plan of God. It's glorious. And a realization of that plan happened at God's appointed time. And it happened by means of the next point of glory to consider in our outline. First, a glorious plan. Second, a glorious incarnation. A glorious incarnation. And we'll read again verse one, I mean, verse four, it says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Well, the incarnation is that doctrine of Christ's full deity and full humanity. And there's a lot of safeguards that biblical and historic theology provide for us so we don't mess this up. Understanding that Jesus is not 50% man and 50% God, or switching between in some kind of mixture of man and God. It is crucial to understand and appreciate and to adore and to wonder at the mystery and glory that is the glorious incarnation of the Son of God. And it's that phrase that sets us on our mission in this central portion here by saying God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Because Jesus is, first and foremost, the Son of God. He's fully God. His preexistence is implied in that phrase, God sending forth his Son. He existed before his incarnation for all eternity. He is the Son of God. 
Luke 1, 35 declares, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This is his words to Mary. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now this creates a a tension if you study the entirety of the Bible and this concept of Son of God because there are many human beings called sons of God, specific individuals like David, God's covenant people, Israel. In some ways, the entirety of the human race are are sons of God. We understand that because we're made in the likeness and image of God. He's our creator. But that is not what it means in the fullest sense when we say Jesus is the son of God. When Galatians says God sent forth his son. You see, the son of God is not only a title used broadly when applied to Jesus. It's a title that's used very specifically. Indeed, what we find in the New Testament is that Jesus is the son of God in both the broadest sense. He is the son of God like Adam, like Israel, like David. But he is also, and most importantly, and most significantly, Significantly, he is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And this truth brings us into the mystery of the incarnation. The depth, not of sentimentality and, and silliness that we celebrate at Christmas, but the, the profound reality that is the heart and fuel of the Christian faith throughout the centuries. The right place to start thinking about this is, is John chapter 1. You could turn there if you're still with me. You're not online shopping, are you? It's too late for that. John 1, this prologue starting in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Skip down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the question about verse 1, answered by verse 14, is who is the word? Well, the word is God. The word is Jesus. Jesus is the eternal word who took on flesh, who dwelt among us, Verse 14, the only son from the father. This is the word monogenes, translated as only begotten or one and only or only son. John uses this word throughout in verse 14, verse 18. It's used in most memorably in John 3.16. In John 3.18, in 1 John he uses it. And it's a, a word that identifies Jesus as God's divine son, the preexistent one the second person of the Godhead. He's a son unlike any other son of God. There's a uniqueness to Jesus' sonship. And throughout his gospel, it is a pointer and an indicator of Jesus' divine nature. The word, John 1.14, the word became flesh. In the most significant sense, this means that Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is important because only God can save us. Because we need to be saved from the wrath of God. 
The, the danger that Christians have when they talk about salvation is they forget well, what are, what are we talking about when we say, well, I got saved, and when I was eight years old, I got saved 10 years ago, however we use it. Do we know what we're talking about when we say we're saved? Because ultimately, the biggest problem we had wasn't that we were depressed or that we had bad habits or that we were wrecking our lives. The biggest problem we had is that we were in rebellion against a holy God. That's what sin is. And so the reason, one of the reasons that Jesus must be truly God is because only God can save us from God. If Jesus didn't have the power of God and the authority of God, then he could not save us. That's why John would go on to say to those who believe, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, Jesus speaks for God because Jesus is God. You know, when Jesus tells us that whoever comes to me I will not cast out. When Jesus offers us uh, salvation through faith in him, by trusting in him, there's no need for us to question the authenticity or genuineness or authority of that promise. When Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When Jesus reminds us that he came to seek and save the lost, we can trust him, we can believe him, we can count on him because Jesus is God. That's why Jesus must be truly God. If he didn't have the power of God and the authority of God, then he could not save us. There's no need for us to speak to a supervisor or to get a second opinion or to put this thing to further review. I shouldn't bring this up right now, but let's say you're in tax trouble. <laughs> and you owe a bunch. Who knows why? And you're just, you feel the burden of the tax debt. But one day, a man with a tie and a briefcase knocks on your door and says, hello, taxpayer. Your enormous tax debt has been forgiven. Awesome, isn't it? And he turns away and he, he walks down the street. Do you sleep better that night? I don't because I, I you know, I don't trust that guy. I don't trust the government at all. I don't know that guy. I don't trust anybody. I believe in total depravity. I have a hard time trusting. I trust Jesus. But when this guy comes to the door and says, you know, good news, your tax bill's been canceled. You owe nothing. Have a good day. I'm saying, wait, hold up. You got a business card or something? Can I get a receipt? Because maybe you just sell solar panels. Or you're a Jehovah Witness or whatever. I want to know what gives you the right to make me this promise. Who's your boss? You see, Jesus personally has all authority and all power and all ability to cancel our sin debt once and for all. John 1.14, he dwelt among us and he was full of grace and truth. He can't lie. He can't violate the who he is as God, it's essential if we're to be saved that we're saved by God. And when this text tells us that God sent his son, a son is of like nature. Your son, my son, is like me. 
And God's Son is the Son of God. He's God the Son. And what he's been sent to do, he will accomplish. You can count on it because he's God. He has the final say. That's the glorious incarnation. It continues not only by showing us that he's fully God, he's also fully man. And that seems to be the main emphasis of this text in Galatians. Verse 4, it says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. God's son should not be born of a woman. That's provocative and shocking. In fact, God shouldn't be born at all. But here we are at the very message of Christianity, at the heart of the Christmas glory. Christ was born of woman. The word became flesh. Do you see that the glorious incarnation of Christ teaches us that Jesus was a real human child? He became flesh, but not just a physical body, but a person, fully human. Everything that makes a person a person. Who Jesus is, he became, he he took on his, his mind, his soul, his body. Not just a body, but a body and everything that makes a human, human, a human, a human person. Jesus had a mom. He didn't descend from the clouds at age uh, 25 or 30. He had siblings. He grew up. He had a cousin and relatives, and he ran and he played. He was born of Mary. He didn't have an earthly father biologically, and that made Jesus miraculous and different, but still he was born of a woman. He was a baby and a child and a teenager and then a full-grown man. He was a human being, and this was necessary because just as his deity, his full deity is necessary, his full humanity is necessary because he needed to be a part of Adam's race, part of David's line as king. So Jesus took on full humanity to accomplish our salvation. Just as a fully divine Jesus is necessary for our salvation, likewise a fully human Jesus is necessary for our salvation. And this is so beautiful and glorious because this is the most assaulted truth in our world right now. Under assault more than any other truth, it seems that no one understands in our society what it means to be truly human. There's so much turmoil in our society around issues pertaining to our humanity, to biblical anthropology, gender, abortion, sexuality. All of these topics are fraught with controversy because people don't understand the Bible's teaching about what it means to be a human being. We don't decide what it means to be human. God defines it. We're not products of chance or evolution or circumstance. It's part of the order of creation. And by Jesus taking on humanity, he demonstrates God's commitment to redeem and to rescue humanity. By Jesus becoming a man, he shows us that God is is committed to man, committed to saving man. The God who made us will remake us. The God who brought humanity into existence, will salvage humanity and rescue humanity. And he can only do this through the full and true incarnation of the Son of God. Why is the incarnation glorious? Because Jesus is fully God and fully man. According to God's divine plan, according to God sending forth his Son, born of a woman, and then born under the law. That's a reminder that 
Jesus took on that same righteous standard that all of us fail under so miserably. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are sinners by nature and by choice. The bad things we think, the evil things we do, all of it, our failure to thank God, to worship God as we ought, it's all evidence that we're sinners, that we're born that way, that we're inclined towards sin. It's why we have any problems at all is because we're not right. Jesus took on the same nature that we had, but did so without sin in perfect righteousness to fulfill the curse of the law. Galatians 3 verse 10, for as many are as under the works of the law are under curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. You see, Jesus was under this curse and he broke the curse because he abided by all things written in the law. He was justified before God because of his perfectly righteous life. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us, of chapter three, from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And in Jesus' dying in our place as a substitutionary atonement for us, taking on the punishment of our sin on his perfect, righteous self, we would receive the glorious benefits of his righteousness. B.B. Warfield says, the glory of the incarnation is that it presents to our adoring gaze not a humanized God or deified man, but a true God-man, one who is all that God is and at the same time all that man is, on whose mighty arm we can rest and to whose human sympathy we can appeal. We cannot afford to lose either the God and the man or the man in God. Our hearts cry out for the complete God-man whom the scriptures offer us. Well, third and finally, it's glorious benefits. And this is the message of the book of Galatians. And it says it here in verse five, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. These are the glorious benefits. The glorious benefits are simply this. Redemption. Adoption, sonship, and therefore heirs. The Bible presents us to be slaves of sin. And one of the greatest evidences of our slavery, according to Hebrews chapter 2, is our fear of death. All of us were entrapped by the fear of death. Jesus, by redeeming us, an important word in the Bible that speaks of buying someone back or changing their status and bringing them into the family. It's the the key word in, in the Ruth story. It's the key concept of Israel being taken out of slavery and and bought back to God. This idea of redemption, to redeem those under the law, is one of the glorious benefits that comes from the incarnation and the salvation plan of God. God redeems those who are under the law. It's an incredible reminder here in the book of Galatians, in the context of this letter, that these people need to understand That if they are to buy into the concept that there is something they must do to secure their salvation, something they must earn, rituals they must perform, law that must be kept, that if salvation is 
is requiring them to return to Judaistic rules and regulations and Sabbaths and feasts and, and all the rest. Paul writes this letter to remind them of what redemption really accomplishes. He teaches them they're not put in right standing with God, not justified by the works of the Torah, but by trust in Messiah and in his accomplished work. He shows them that the addition of anything, even aspects of the old covenant that were for good, for God's people, for Israel, couldn't be mixed or mingled with faith because faith was in Jesus alone. No rites or rituals, nothing of the law, nothing justifying us before God except for faith in Christ, his death on the cross for our sins his righteousness in our place. And so this entire letter has argued for the primacy of faith in Jesus alone and the righteousness of Jesus alone as the heart of the gospel. And so in chapter three and chapter four, what Paul's been talking about to the Galatians is about creating a new family It's Paul's goal to help them understand the relationship of the old economy and God's work in salvation in history through Abraham and God's purposes in the church. He's showing them that God has always operated this way, that salvation has always been by faith, and that the story of Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 is that God's purpose in the church has always been to save by faith. The apostle Paul shows them that the law has positive benefits. The Torah has positive and negative functions. Negatively, it serves as a magnifying glass, exposing the sinfulness of our sin and our need for salvation. And positively, it functions like a school teacher who teaches us how to live until the dawning of the Messiah. But ultimately, his emphasis has been that the Messiah has come, that Jesus has perfectly fulfilled all of God's law. Jesus, the perfect Israelite, the ultimate king, our high priest, and God's promised prophet. As he brings this letter to a close, he teaches them that their status has changed because of the coming of Jesus. Verse one of chapter four, now I say as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he's owner of everything. But he's under guardianship and management until the day set by the Father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God gave forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Verse seven, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the magnificent glory of the gospel. This is the heart of the coming of Emmanuel at Christmas time. This is the argument that Paul is making. And he zooms in to show us what he showed us in this Christmas section to, to help us to see and to be reminded of the glorious plan of salvation that Jesus' incarnation accomplishes in our lives. When I was a kid, my favorite series to read was, was the Narnia books by C.S. Lewis. And in the final one, The Last Battle Lucy's talking to Lord Didgeridoo, and she says to him, once in our world, 
there was something in a stable that was bigger than our whole world. That's the message of the glory of Christmas. It's not sentimental, it's not superficial, it's profound, it's theological, it's divine, and it leads to our redemption and adoption as sons of God to bring us into his family forever. You can count on it because Jesus is fully man and fully God, and because God's plan to save cannot be thwarted. Merry Christmas. Father, thank you for your truth, your word, how glorious is it to be called a child of God. We adore this God-man. We worship him, reminded of his preeminence and his glory. Thank you that he lived under the law so that he would defeat the dominion and tyranny of sin. Thank you that Jesus is the exception to that rule that he lived perfectly righteous as the true offspring, the true Israel, the true son of God, that he lived perfectly in accordance with God's law where all others violated the will of God. He lived perfectly to rescue us, to take on the curse of the law on himself so that he could liberate us, so that he could free us, so that the captives could be brought into the family of God released from the power of sin and gloriously saved. Thank you, God, for including us in your family because of your glorious plan of redemption. Help us to meditate on these things, to teach it to our children, and for it to fuel our worship and everything that we do over this season and for all our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.